0: Welcome to Psydactic, Residency Edition. I am Dr. O'Leary, a third-year psychiatry resident in the National Capital Region. I am excited to bring you another episode, and it's one that I really enjoyed making. If anything, this podcast is a public admission of my ignorance. I struggle to understand psychiatry. I question diagnoses, I question treatments, I offer my opinion, but my opinion is simply one that's forming. It's one that is incomplete. I hope if you struggle with me that we can both come together to a better understanding of what we do as psychiatrists and why. I represent no institution, and these opinions are my own. They are not medical advice. At best, they are educated ramblings. If you've heard my previous episodes, you know I love a good story about neuroscience. The neuroscience of our interventions. I think it's the future of psychiatry. Anyone can conduct efficacy trials of some new treatment, but few can understand why something works on average for a certain condition in a certain population, or why there are particular side effects of each treatment. One of the most influential models in psychiatry's history for understanding brain dysfunction is the monoamine hypothesis. In short, it proposes that deficiencies or excess of certain neuromodulating agents, in particular the monoamines like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, aka noradrenaline, drive many psychiatric disorders. Depression has been conceptualized as a deficiency of serotonin, anxiety as an excess of norepinephrine, and schizophrenia and mania as an excess of dopamine. But we now know that this conceptual framework is deficient in knowledge and excessive in clinical practice. However, it has borne a lot of fruit in that now we have many different agents to modulate neuroactivity. We have monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOIs. We have selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, Uh, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs. We have norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, the NERIs, and dopamine blockers, and alpha blockers, beta blockers, bupropion. and numerous other hard-to-classify agents like trazodone, clozapine, ketiapine, lorazodone, mirtazapine, etc. There are lots of owns, doles, and enes populating our pharmaceutical arsenals. One problem we face is that, well, while we know that if you add one of these agents to a neuron, it affects the levels of a certain neurotransmitter or neuromodulator, but we don't know, like How networks of neurons are affected by these agents, and how these agents over time change these networks, and why certain side effects abound when we give people these agents. What I want to discuss today is a perfect example of this, the noradrenergic paradox. The paper I will primarily reference is a publication by the same name in 2016 by Montoya, Bruins, Katzman and Blair in Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment. Its basic proposal is that at the time of publication, there were at least 52 controlled trials published that consistently show a benefit of using SNRIs, or those serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like venlafaxine and duloxetine, and the NERIs, or NERIs, the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like atomoxetine and riboxetine, for reducing anxiety in patients without the expected side effect of noradrenergic agents, which was to increase anxiety. This is the paradox. This paper was not a meta-analysis, just a systematic review, but it Demonstrated profoundly that simple predictions relying on the standard view of what would happen if we increase norepinephrine's presence at the synapses is not sufficient to understand norepinephrine. We should start with the question why do we expect norepinephrine to increase anxiety? We know that if you simply inject norepinephrine, a.k.a. adrenaline, into a person, their blood pressure will increase, they may breathe faster, their muscles will engorge with blood, and they can get jittery and even feel an impending sense of doom. We know norepinephrine plays a crucial role in the sympathetic nervous system's response to threats. It is an integral player in the flight, fight, or freeze response. In some degree, it participates in the hypervigilance and intense reactions to reminders of trauma in PTSD. So why, oh why, would giving a compound that blocks the reuptake of norepinephrine at the terminal actually help with anxiety and PTSD and even ADHD? So using this paper as a guide, let's back up and have a look at the brain. Maybe you remember the locus coeruleus It lives in the ponds and it produces norepinephrine. It's especially important for shipping norepinephrine to the hippocampus, the neocortex, and the cerebellum, which can help the brain pay attention, take notes, and prepare to move. More basically, it's part of the reticular activating system that tells the brain that it needs to start being conscious of what's going on. There are other nuclei in the pons and in the tegmental area that also produce and ship norepinephrine. The A5 and A7 nuclei in the pons join with the locus ceruleus to deliver norepinephrine to the hypothalamus and the amygdala. Autonomic functions in the medulla and other parts of the midbrain rely on norepinephrine projections. Norepinephrine is also shipped off to the spinal cord and helps regulate the responses to pain, and that explains why duloxetine is so frequently prescribed in chronic pain disorders. The locus ceruleus is crucial for the fear responses and stress. And when it gets really active, the result is often anxiety. That's why it doesn't make sense that inhibiting the reuptake of norepinephrine would dampen down anxiety. The answer seems to have something to do with how norepinephrine is delivered for normal anxiety-provoking situations when fear and hypervigilance is actually needed. Animal studies have shown that the locus coeruleus, the amygdala, and the hypothalamus get a relative flood of norepinephrine in stressful situations. Nuclei in the hypothalamus activate the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA axis, and this induces a whole body stress response as well as a ramping up of the locus coeruleus, which makes an organism appear stressed and anxious. Now our executive function comes into play, the prefrontal cortex. A little extra norepinephrine promotes cognition and executive functioning. Pay attention. Look for important details make decisions. That's not a threat. That is. Okay. Calm down. We're good. Too little norepinephrine, and we just lose interest and get drowsy. Too much, and the system malfunctions. Our working memory is impaired, and we go into survival mode. This is why people function poorly with little stimulation, and they also function poorly with too much stimulation. It's like an inverted U-curve. There's a sweet spot. It also helps explain why in PTSD there's so much cognitive impairment... It's the postsynaptic alpha-1 and beta receptors in the prefrontal cortex that are activated by norepinephrine and elicit a response. But things aren't that simple. The release of norepinephrine is also modulated by the presence of other of the monoamines, such as serotonin and dopamine. Plus, there are presynaptic alpha-2 receptors that are activated, resulting in like the reuptake and metabolism of norepinephrine. Things get complex because changes in the relative concentration of any of these neurotransmitters can affect the presence of others, and this may be different in different regions of the brain. As for the receptors, as far as we know, all of the alpha-2 receptors result in inhibitory signals on that presynaptic neuron. And while alpha-1 is usually excitatory, in certain cases it might also be inhibitory. The odd-numbered beta receptors, beta-1 and beta-3, are excitatory. But the beta-2 may or may not be. But norepinephrine hits them all. We have two commonly used alpha modulators that hit some of the same receptors that norepinephrine hits. They are prazosin and clonidine. Prazosin is an alpha 1 blocker and clonidine is an alpha 2 agonist. They both end up having a similar effect, that is of reducing the action of norepinephrine on neurons so they can lower blood pressure and reduce some of the anxiety responses, like nightmares and panic. I remember this relationship by remembering that prazosin is post. Prazosin is post, and clonidine cleans it up. Prazosin blocks postsynaptic alpha 1, the thing that excites stuff, and clonidine promotes clearing of norepinephrine by stimulating presynaptic alpha two, the one that helps to get rid of all that norepinephrine. It's actually more complicated than this, because like I said before, there can also be postsynaptic alpha two receptors that have inhibitory effects, but ignore what I just said. So one of the important things is the relative affinity of the alpha one and the alpha two receptors. Alpha-2 has a higher affinity than alpha-1, or the beta receptors, which means that low levels of norepinephrine will first fill sites on the receptors in alpha-2 and have an overall dampening effect, while high levels promote more activity overall. Prolonged high levels of norepinephrine will also desensitize the presynaptic alpha-2, but not the postsynaptic ones, showing that there can be adaptations that still preserve inhibitory responses. We don't know all of these adaptations, but we know that SNRIs, when they're titrated slowly, serve more to reduce anxiety than to promote it. Overall, what this means is that at baseline... Normal function requires a certain tonic level of norepinephrine to promote cognition, while stress responses occur because of a phasic or like pulsing type release of norepinephrine. So we have the reticular activating system using norepinephrine to say, hey, wake up, be aware, pay attention, this is nice. But we have these like phasic responses, boom, 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 that say, hey, be hyper aware, shut off the prefrontal cortex, Turn on defense mechanisms. One might think that people with PTSD and panic disorders would have overall increased basal rates of norepinephrine, but the authors of the paper that I'm talking about state that this is not the case. Their levels are normal. However, people with PTSD and panic have exaggerated responses to that phasic release of norepinephrine. And SNRIs, especially venlafaxine in the papers they reviewed, have been demonstrated to be beneficial for these patients. Somehow, SNRIs reduce the hyper-responsiveness to this phasic release. And Maybe that explains the norepinephrine paradox in a very vague way. The take-home message from this paper is that a simple view relying on assumptions that increasing baseline norepinephrine over time will increase anxiety or panic has not been demonstrated. In fact, the opposite has, and this is most likely due to a complex poorly understood adaptation of neurons to increase tonic levels of norepinephrine at the terminals, and that results in improved cognition, reduced hyper to the phasic release of norepinephrine. This is the noradrenergic paradox. Thank you for listening. I hope to be able to release another series soon that does a more deep dive into psychiatric t- treatments. but. I am, in any case, excited to keep this podcast going as it forces me to organize my thoughts in a way that the distractions of clinical work and lectures and academics s- simply cannot. I am Dr. O, and this has been an episode of Sidactic, residency edition.